Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The temptation to binge watch may have gotten worse with even more streaming services to check out. This month, Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus are the latest to debut. Are you subscribing? Coming up, NPR TV critic Eric Deggins will join us to break down what these latest providers have to offer. And what does Netflix have up its sleeve to entice you to stay? That's later. First, most of us take high-speed internet for granted. It may surprise you to hear that not every part of Connecticut has access to broadband. Rural communities often have coverage gaps. Coming up, we'll hear how states around the country are addressing digital access. Now, here in Connecticut, a recent court ruling could help local towns expand internet service to their residents. To tell us more, joining me now in studio is Joe Rosenthal, Principal Attorney for the Connecticut Office of Consumer Counsel. Uh, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Also with me is Jessica Fowler. She's chair of Northwest Connect, an organization that promotes broadband. Also a member of the Town of Sharon Board of Finance, where she also used to be town selectman. Jessica, welcome to where we live. Good morning. So let's start with you, Jessica. Tell us about Sharon. I understand when I look at a map of Connecticut, it's in the northwest part of our state, part of Litchfield County. Tell us about your residents. How big is your town? Well, Sharon has a population of approximately 2,300 people. And what's really interesting about our small little burg is that we actually have the most number of road miles in the state of Connecticut. I cannot remember the exact number, and I know my first selectman is listening to me (laughs) going, oh, my God, I can't believe you forgot, but I did. Um, But one of the most interesting things that we found, Lucy, when we were looking at infrastructure, and remember, we see broadband as the fourth piece of infrastructure. There's water, there's electric, there's telephone, and then there's broadband. So when we were looking at broadband as a additional piece of infrastructure, the first thing we did was work with our council of governments to do an assessment of the whole region. What's going on in the region? What are the services that are available? What are the speeds that are available? What are the costs that are available? I didn't bring all that information with me, and we could do a whole other show on that. But the upshot of it was for sharing there were 23% of homes without broadband access and 25 miles of roads without mobile access Mm -hmm. in Sharon. So this is putting us, you know, we live in a beautiful park. We love where we live. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. It's calm. It's quiet. It's putting us at a serious disadvantage. And it's not just putting us at a disadvantage in being able to provide things for residents, but we can't really be a part of this state economy. And that's what we really want to be. When you talk about 23% uh, that, that don't have access to broadband, who are your residents that don't have this access? And what are their alternatives? Yeah, it's varied. I mean, it's, you know, it's some people that have homes that are quite remote and quite far from roads. Um, it's usually the folks in it's usually the the folks who live on roads that are the furthest away from any point of access from a Comcast line from a frontier hookup so it's usually just the remoteness of their homes that would dictate that so you mentioned a couple of the internet service providers and so uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, when the town of Sharon is trying to work with these providers uh, for them to uh, expand internet service so you know why isn't it easy 
Oh, that is such a great question, and I'm so glad you asked that. When I was first elected in 2013, my other two selectmen were also new, and we walked into our first selectman's office for our first meeting, and Brent took out a huge, huge manila folder full of stuff and said, these are all the people that have been complaining forever about a lack of access. So we knew right away that there was a lot of need in our town. We, for for years, our state rep at that time, Roberta Willis, uh, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, all it took was for Roberta to call up Comcast and say, listen, I've got five or six homes in this area of my district. They need a connection. And Comcast would say, fine, sure, no problem. And they'd go ahead and do that. They stopped doing it. I mean, our population density is so thin that it just doesn't make any sense for their business plan. Uh, about five years ago, actually four years ago, Northwest Connect sat down with Frontier and talked about doing a fiber optic network. What would it look like for the whole 21 town council of government region? How much would it cost? Uh, we got quite far in the negotiations. But the minute that Frontier proposed that the residents pay for the build out of the infrastructure and that then Frontier would own the infrastructure, that was kind of the sticking point because as a municipal leader, there's just absolutely no way I could sell that to my taxpayers. Here, pay for something, but by the way, you won't own it and you won't have any say about it. So things stopped. So we did, ha we did make um, a lot of attempts to reach out, but we just weren't getting anywhere. So now you're, uh, you mentioned uh, you're advocating for this. So Northwest Connect, tell us about what this partnership is. You mentioned there's other towns involved that is looking at maybe it's the town's responsibility to try to expand this Internet service. How do you do that? Right. So the, the, the uh, Northwest uh, Connect came, we work under the umbrella, really, of the Northwest Hills COGS. So we have a lot of representation from our first selectman on that board. And our main mission is to advocate for broadband and to provide resources to all the towns so that they can figure out how to do this themselves. And I think this is a wonderful segue into the recent Pura decision because right now, because of the decision that was made by the judge last week, everything goes so fast, I can't remember, last yes. week, yes, because of the decision that was made last week, this opens up the playing field for us. Yeah. So Before we get to that decision, yeah. I, I wanted to bring in, again, uh, Joe Rosenthal, principal attorney for the Connecticut Office of Consumer Counsel, because I think there's some background that would help our listeners understand uh, this issue. So when we're hearing about uh, the, the issues in the town of Sharon, is this something that you're also hearing from other towns as part of uh, the Office of Consumer Counsel? Yes, Lucy. The Connecticut Consumer Counsel, uh, now former Ellen Swanson Katz, uh, who's moved on to the private sector, along with my colleague Bill Valley, who was the statewide broadband coordinator within the Office of Consumer Counsel, identified really three uh, issues with broadband access and affordability in the state, three types of issues. There's the rural issue, which we are already discussing with towns like Sharon. Sharon is not alone. Uh, there's also dig what goes by the digital divide type issues, more frequently in the urban areas. So we identified areas right here in the city of Hartford and uh, the North End where students face uh, many barriers to trying to achieve affordable internet access at home. And also, um, Ellen and Bill worked with uh, commercial uh, entities here in Hartford who were suffering because uh, they did not have adequate internet access. And then there's towns that are would simply like to get much higher speeds uh, 
uh, in order to attract more businesses to their towns uh, and provide better services to their residents. So there are towns that uh, you know, have some internet access through their cable, but they really want to take that up to what we call the gig level or beyond. Mm. So when we think about uh, the service, again, that internet service providers uh, uh, offer or give to their customers like Frontier, like Comcast, so what is uh, the sticking point for them where they're not looking to expand uh, broadband in these particular areas, Joe? Well, and and that's a great point. And, and, you know, I think we, like most folks, would prefer a private sector solution uh, where one is available. I think there's been uh, difficult negotiations with uh, rural territories because of the distances uh, between homes, and they have not been a- they they have not uh, been able to solve this problem. And it's a desperate problem for for these folks who lack uh, access in towns like Sharon. Um, in terms of the digital divide issues, you know, it, the solution is either going to have to come from municipal broadband or through some programmatic offerings of the uh, providers like Comcast or Frontier at, at deep discounts. There's some of that. There's not enough of it. And so when a town is looking to expand internet service uh, to their residents, there's something called municipal gains. Can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. The municipal gain is a, is a space on every uh, utility pole or conduit, which is an underground pipe, uh, in the state. Um, and it's been around since 1905. And it is a free space that municipalities... Uh, can use uh, for uh, on the poles, and it's supposed to be readily available for them for their use. But this came into, uh, I guess, uh, the attention uh, when the legislature passed a law in 2013. So explain what happened there and why Internet service providers weren't happy with what the General Assembly did. Sure. So excellent question. And uh, really go back to 2000, and Pura had issued a ruling that opened the door to Manchester uh, doing an internal, so um, for city, for strict city purposes, uh, communications network in that city. Uh, move forward to 2013, as you mentioned, the, the statute uh, that, that deals with the municipal gain was amended so that the key phrase in there now says, for any purpose. And so uh, we were very hopeful when that change uh, came to be that this would open the door to municipal broadband. Mm. Uh, so you mentioned Pura. That's the Public Utility Regulatory Authority. Uh, they ended up siding uh, with the Internet service providers uh, saying that, uh, that this statute uh, was uh, anti-competitive? Yes, they did. Uh, it was There was lengthy litigation before uh, Pura. Uh, on this subject, first initiated by the Office of Consumer Counsel, uh, because we wanted to, we were, you know, we were hearing that there was some uh, differences of opinion about how to interpret this. So we wanted to actually get clarification from Pura, and we got clarification, but we got it in the wrong direction <laughs> from our perspective. Um, so, um, yeah, they they ultimately determined that um, the free aspect of the municipal gain. Um, uh, would run afoul of some federal anti-competition statutes. Mm. 
Uh, so when that uh, decision came uh, out uh, again, uh, Jessica, you know, what was your take in terms of what this means for the plans that the Northwest Connect had in trying to expand in the, in the region? Uh, which part of the decision are uh, you referring to? The prior decision before last week. Uh, that oh. sided with uh, Pura sided with the internet service provider. Well, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I had been reading the tea leaves for a while and had been able to see that it was most likely going to be going this way. Um, I think we immediately on Northwest Connect started to work with other groups across the state and talk about pushing back on this because we felt we had a really good case. And, you know, one of the ma- one of the tenets, and Joe can speak a little bit more about this, was in some of those arguments was the whole idea of competition. And we felt like we had a very good case that we could show that there really is no competition in our area uh, to speak of at all. And we needed to be able to promote and provide some kind of competition by um, changing changing this legislation so that it accurately it, it more accurately reflected our ability to be able to go in and do something. Uh, from the, these companies' standpoint, uh, the fact that they have to pay to use the space on utility poles, but towns would get it for free, um, you know, how do you respond to, to that concern that they say that's anti-competitive? Um, I think I can understand some of that from a business, business point. Um, and I also think that Poll access fees are something that should be discussed. Poll, uh, to pay the poll access fee in a build-out, from what I know and from what I've learned, it's only 10% of the whole build-out. So we're not talking something that would potentially break a network's financials. I think it could be absorbed. Now, there are some on the other side of this, um, especially some legislators who really feel like municipalities absolutely should not pay for this space. Um, but... I I think that there's conversation that needs to be had about this because the last thing that I want now is to have an appeal take another one and a half to three years and municipalities still sitting there and the only way they can get on the poll is by being an electric utility. You're hearing Jessica Fowler, chair of Northwest Connect, also a member of the Board of Finance for the Town of Sharon, as we talk about efforts by some municipalities uh, to work on expanding Internet access uh, to residents where uh, there is not a great reliable service. Also with me here on Where We Live is Joe Rosenthal, principal attorney for the Connecticut Office of Consumer Counsel. And so, uh, Joe, update us. Uh, We mentioned this court ruling last week that actually um, helps municipalities like the Town of Sharon and uh, keep working towards this ability to provide internet uh, to their residents. Uh, what happened? So, yes, we're excited about this ruling on behalf of the municipalities. Uh, the judge determined that the Pura ruling should be vacated. So there were options where we could have ended up going back to Pura for development of more facts. The judge determined that um, the case could be um, decided uh, strictly based on the legal claims. So um, that was that was a better path for us. It provided more clarity uh, to the municipalities um, to go ahead and, and commence uh, to try to serve their citizens and businesses better uh, with higher speed broadband, not without risks. 
I should mention we reached out to Pura as well as the Cable Telecom and Wireless Industry Associations for comment today. We did not uh, get a response. We did get a, a statement from Frontier, uh, which uh, um, has uh, circulated this uh, widely uh, with uh, media, that it believes a decision by the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority was the correct one based on state and federal law, as well as the principles of fair competition. We're reviewing the decision, uh, and that would be last week's decision, and next steps. And so, uh, Sharon, I sh- I, I'm sorry. I should ask you, Jessica, when we think about the town of Sharon and uh, what they're putting forth, how much is this costing uh, the town and these other uh, municipalities to try to come up for a solution for your residents? How much does it cost us now or how much could it cost to how do a How much is it network? costing now and then moving forward? Well, we've been fortunate that Northwest Connect has um, – has had some private funding to move forward and uh, you uh, move forward to pay for uh, legal advocacy and legal representation. So at this point, we're we're very happy about that. Um, I think it's more Lucy about what we're losing, and I think we're losing time. Um, time is just ticking away very very quickly on all of this. And again, I go back to. If this is appealed and we need to wait any longer in order to give our municipalities an option, I'm very afraid. I mean, I I see people leaving the state of Connecticut. I see people leaving our area. I see low enrollment in my schools. I see a a really big division between um, people who can afford to be in my area and people who are really just hanging on. And I think that is kind of mirrors what's going on across the country right now. I can tell you that we've run the numbers to do a network in the town of Sharon. And right now, we know that it would probably cost about $5.6 million to do. And that sounds like a a large amount of money. But if you think about it, it boils down to about $11.85 a home on a 40-year – that's a month on a 40-year loan at 4%. So if we take a step back and look at how much we spend on a state average, uh, our households spend on roads, that's about 100 bucks a month. $488 $488 a month on education. That's a, a statewide average. So I think you, once you start to put these numbers in perspective, I think you can see that it's really quite doable. I think you also brought up an interesting point, and that is uh, for people who have the ability to move, if they're really looking for faster internet, um, accessibility services, they could move uh, to an area that provides that. But it's the people that don't have that flexibility. Uh, why should they not have uh, access to uh, the internet uh, in a way that can help them, whether it's finding a job or getting an appointment? Uh, we hear often about telehealth. I mean, mm-hmm. this is something that's really um, also impacts your residents. Yeah, I mean, I, I I said recently to a reporter, you know, it is not uncommon for someone in my town to have to drive 20 to 30 minutes to see a doctor um, or to have any kind of health health care services, even going to the dentist. So I think that telehealth is something that I see a lot of value could come for residents in Sharon and the other rural municipalities. I know that Sharon Hospital, and I'll be speaking with them in a couple weeks, is looking at how to deliver mental health services. And I think that's sort of the low-hanging fruit of telehealth because you can get psychiatric care. You could also access a therapist online uh, over a a Skype-like medium. I think that would work really, really well. Of course, if you can't reach everybody, you're not going to be able to do it. And uh, Joe Rosenthal, before we head to break, uh, are you expecting Internet service providers to appeal this latest uh, court ruling in Connecticut? 
Yes, I don't want to give them advice, but I would expect <laughs> that they, I would expect that they will. Uh, I'm not positive about Pura one way or the other, which way they would like to go. There could also be uh, attempts at uh, legislative changes uh, in the upcoming session, um, or you know, and there could also be brand new areas of litigation, perhaps in federal court, uh, once a municipality and begins to move in this direction of trying to serve their citizens and businesses with uh, municipal internet services. I want to thank Joe Rosenthal again, principal attorney for the Connecticut Office of Consumer Counsel for coming in today here on Where We Live. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. Jessica Fowler is going to stay with us, chair of Northwest Connect, an organization that promotes broadband, also a member of the Town of Sharon Board of Finance and a former selectman there. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is Where We Live. After the break, we're going to hear how other states are handling this idea of municipal broadband networks. What do you think? Is this something needed where you live? You can join us, 888 888- 720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Should cities and towns build fast internet networks to benefit their local residents and businesses? Today we're talking about municipal broadband after a recent Connecticut court ruling sided with municipalities saying, quote, they have the right to use utility poles within their borders to build out internet networks. That's reported by the Hartford Business Journal. Now, how should cities and towns move forward? And what are the risks? Joining us now by phone is Jed Preston. Grove staff writer with Government Technology Magazine. Uh, Jed, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Also with me in studio again is Jessica Fowler, chair of Northwest Connect. This is a, a local organization, Jed, that promotes broadband and is a member of the Town of Sharon Board of Finance. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so, Jed, we were hearing from Jessica about the Town of Sharon, a rural community where we have private Internet service providers that aren't willing to build out the infrastructure. And for, in your reporting, is that a, a common story? in less populated areas of the country? Absolutely. Yeah, we see a lot of cases uh, of this um, in different states, that's for sure. And so what are the challenges when we think about, again, rural communities banding together, maybe it's with their, uh, their neighboring towns, to come up with a way of expanding high-speed Internet? Uh, what are some of those challenges? Well, the challenges are many. It really just depends on what state you're talking about. And then also from there, you have to go to the local area specifically. So uh, you, you think about uh, a place uh, like Iowa um, that has uh, several different communities in it. Uh, one community that I wrote about, uh, Davenport, uh, maybe it's not considered as rural as other communities, uh, but um it did not have uh, great uh, service, uh, existing service providers. Um, <clears throat> they had issues uh, with businesses basically needing to buy um, monotonous service. So they had to buy service from two different service providers in case one of the services went down. And so uh, they had to, uh, you know, figure out a way to provide more consistent broadband service. Uh, another uh, town in Iowa uh, is called uh, Cedar Rapids, and they they do have uh, a municipal broadband service. Uh, but the reason why they uh, have it is because they had an existing 
public utility with electric and gas. And so they were able to leverage that in order to provide uh, broadband service. So in a lot of cases for these small places, uh, it comes down to that, whether you already have an existing public utility. Uh, but then uh, if you go even uh, further down in population, uh, when you get down to the point where you're, you know, 2,500 people, at that point it becomes very difficult to negotiate with Internet service providers uh, how do you offer them an enticing economic development package, for example? Um, how do you justify the cost if you have very remote homes in this area? Uh, also, the type of technology uh, that the provider uh, could use, that, that could uh, make an impact. Let's say that the provider is a fiber provider, and you're trying to get them into a very small town. Well, fiber costs a lot of money per mile. And so if you have people that are, you know, away from the town center, uh, that's going to cost a lot of money. So there's so many different things that can affect communities uh, in the United States. I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, the different technologies, including fiber, because when we talk about broadband Internet, uh, that can mean uh, different things when we're thinking about technologies. Can you break it down further for us, uh, Jed? So uh, fiber is one way to do it. What are some other technologies that municipal municipalities uh, have been exploring uh, around the country? Yes, there are a number of, uh, of things other than fiber. Uh, one thing is uh, microwave. Uh, microwave is uh, one option, although that requires line of sight. In other words, you could not do microwave in a mountainous region because you don't have line of sight. But I know, for example, that in uh, Nebraska, they have a pretty large microwave network. And I understand from the state CIO that some of the counties take advantage of that. Uh, then there's also satellite. I know from talking to the broadband director in Nevada that different rural communities in Nevada have taken care have taken advantage of satellite uh, internet, uh, and then uh, there's also cable. Although uh, in certain cases the cable infrastructure may be old or something, and so the service may be inconsistent, but that is an option uh, if you have up to date cable that, that can work. Uh, interestingly, uh, I just learned that uh, DSL through uh, the telephone companies. That doesn't necessarily hit the definition of broadband, but it gets actually pretty close to it. It's like the best DSL system is just below the definition of broadband. So there are a lot of different ways uh, for communities to try to uh, utilize technology to get this. And again, when we're, when we're talking about broadband, we're talking about speed? Right, absolutely. High-speed Internet is, is uh, how you define it. And then it's all about defining high-speed. And so in this case, it's uh, download speed and upload speed. <clears throat> and there are different definitions uh, for high speed, but the best one, I think, to go by right now is from the Federal Communications Commission. And they define it as 25 megabits per second download speed and 3 megabits per second upload speed. Now, I know when I say those terms, certain people might be going, well, what are you even talking about? I don't know what that You're right. means. But just to kind of break it down, uh, the different streaming providers out there, they will tell you that if you have 25 megabits uh, download speed, uh, that will get you uh, pretty consistent high-speed service for streaming uh, for high-definition video, for very high-definition video. So 
that should just tell you that if, if you have that consistent 25 download, uh, three upload speed, uh, you would have no problem uh, streaming your high-definition Netflix, for example. So that kind of gives you an idea of how fast that is. Jed Presgrove, a staff writer with Government Technology Magazine, as we continue to talk about here on Where We Live, uh, municipalities that are looking to expand uh, broadband uh, to their residents where there is a digital divide. Um, If you live in a particular community where you have trouble accessing uh, Internet despite uh, certain providers being in your uh, area, you can give us a call. Uh, That's 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to bring Jessica Fowler back into this conversation again. And chair of Northwest Connect. Uh, she lives in the town of Sharon, again, a rural community that has uh, problems accessing reliable internet service. And so uh, Northwest Connect is an organization that's looking to work with other uh, towns uh, to uh, think about ways municipalities can uh, think about ways to inter- uh, expand internet service. So Jessica, when I asked Jed about the different technologies, it's fiber is what you're interested in and would work for your region? I think the town of Sharon, <coughs> excuse me, Lucy, is is, yes, definitely more interested in fiber. But there are towns around us that are looking at a combination. Uh, Falls Village, for example, is looking at a combination of fiber and a Wi-Fi signal. Um, Norfolk right now is looking at probably both. So it really depends on, like Jed said, the topography of the of the place that you live. I wanted to kind of uh, follow up on something that Jed said about download and upload speeds. <laughs> and he explained it super well. Um, thank you, Jed. <laughs> I didn't have to do oh, it. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I, I think a lot of us think about um, downloading, you know, we love to download our Netflix. We love to download all of our shows. We want to make sure we can get that report. But for me, as a municipal leader, it's the upload that I'm the most concerned about because that's where my economic development comes from. So, for example, I have an artist um, in my community. He's a photographer. And in order for him to upload a very large group of photos, he needs to set it up go to bed, and in the morning, it might be done So with the kind of speed that he has. So I think we need to be quite cognizant of the fact that upload speeds are what really grows our community. That means that we can have people come in, we can have people live, we can have people be in their homes and be able to work from home really, really successfully. Uh, Jed, uh, we were talking about this uh, here in Connecticut where, again, uh, there was a recent court ruling uh, that says that municipalities uh, should have access to these polls uh, to provide uh, expanded, uh, more reliable service to their residents. Uh, but not all states allow this. Uh, is this Tell us a little bit more about um, some of those states. And uh, do you see this debate expanding in, in places around the country? It, it's possible, you know, if so let me just tell you this. If we start to see successes in Connecticut uh, because of this, uh, then you're definitely going to see more conversation uh, probably, uh, if I had to guess, in other states. And the utility polls thing is something that I'm not as familiar with. I haven't written as much about it, but I just know that in passing when I'm talking to people, it is always something that you have to think hard about because it's all about – trying to leverage existing infrastructure so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so, yes, I, I can't speak too specifically about uh, on a state-by-state basis, like which states allow this versus which ones don't. Uh, but I do think that if we start to see success somewhere like Connecticut, 
that that will expand the conversation. Uh, just to give uh, another example that has nothing to do with utility poles, there's also this idea of tackling broadband for rural communities from a regional perspective. And so we saw a law uh, passed in Vermont uh, a few years ago that would allow rural communities to band together and form essentially broadband districts. So that would give, you know, instead of one 2,500 population town trying to negotiate, now you can have, you know, more than 10 towns band together and negotiate. And then once they get a deal with a, with a provider, then that provider would have to, you know, service those different towns. And so uh, there was one district uh, in particular uh, that came about because of that law in Vermont called uh, EC Fiber. And it's a really interesting thing. It's, it's 23, right now it's made up of 23 active towns, and uh, they go about building fiber in a completely different way than the norm. But uh, essentially, uh, they're able to provide very high-speed uh, Internet uh, to these people uh, on the margins of communities. And so that was an inspiration to New Hampshire, uh, so New Hampshire right now is uh, trying to undertake a legislative effort to allow towns there to form that kind of district. So what I'm trying to say is that if we see some success in Connecticut uh, with the utility polls, you can probably bet that that conversation is going to continue somewhere else. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar to what uh, the town of Sharon and others are trying uh, to do here in Connecticut. Yeah, I mean, the, <clears throat> I, I really like the idea of broadband districts. Um, I don't think we need to create a district. I think we have the district in our cogs. So the Council mm-hmm. of yeah, Governments. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I hope that's where you were yeah, going, Lucy. Yeah, Council okay. of Governments, cogs. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, thanks. I, we should, should not use shorthand. I apologize. But the uh, Council of Government groups, I think there's six or eight of them in the state of Connecticut. I think there's six of them. Um, there, there's your entity right there. Um, and that's certainly the place that we started with to begin with. And they have just been tremendously helpful, helpful to us mm-hmm. by helping us get grants to do our work. Um, but th- that could be a great place for these communities to come together and work on this. Uh, you know, Jed was talking about um, successes are important uh, to learn from. But here in Connecticut, uh, Jessica, uh, there are there have been municipal broadband projects uh, that didn't work. So mm-hmm. Groton, Connecticut, as you know, uh, formed an Internet service back in 2004, which failed. And taxpayers ended up shouldering a lot of the debt. Um, again, this is uh, uh, coming out from the Hartford Business Journal. Yeah, so. I don't know mm-hmm. a tremendous – I'm sorry, Lucy. Mm-hmm. I don't know a tremendous amount about the Groton project and specifically specifically why it Mm -hmm. failed, but I can tell you that it is remembered Mm -hmm. and it is the stumbling block for many legislators in terms of opening up access for the communities. I think they're worried that rural communities um, and and some of our more urban communities aren't really ready to make those decisions and take those steps. The Hartford Business Journal reported that, depending on who you ask um, about why this failed in Groton, um, some say that it was a result of a mix of overborrowing, rapidly changing technology, and mm-hmm. steep competition once the service was up and running. So Jed, I wanted to go back to you in terms of uh, different ways municipalities are approaching this. Is it better to look at that public-private partnership uh, instead of the municipalities shouldering a lot of that, um, that financial burden? Well, you should look at all of your options. I mean, the reality is is that you might really want something. Like, in other words, ideologically, you might really want uh, a municipal broadband uh, system. Or ideologically, you might really want a public-private partnership because that's how you lean, so to speak. 
But the reality is, is that what you want is not necessarily going to work out depending on contextual factors. And so what I would tell anyone is that learn as much as you possibly can. Look at every case study, whether it's positive or negative. Look in different states. Look in different communities. You have to learn as much as you possibly can because this is a big decision. And if you make the wrong decision, uh, then you're going to have a big problem. Uh, and it's not just going to be uh, financial. It's also going to be a public image problem. And that public image problem can come from within the community or can come from outside of the community. And to go back to that earlier point, if you do end up being one of those failures, then that could actually prevent other communities uh, from having uh, a chance. Because I do think that legislators look at that, and I do think uh, city planners look at that, and it probably makes them a little paranoid, honestly. Agreed. Completely agree. <laughs> well, I want to uh, end with you, Jessica Fowler, again, from the town of Sharon, uh, chair of Northwest Connect, uh, with a legislative session uh, coming up in, in a few months. Uh, what do you want to see Connecticut lawmakers doing uh, to help, again, this idea of expanding uh, municipal broadband uh, to residents that um, don't have access? Is there a way that the state can help, uh, even though we are in a financial crunch? Right. No, <clears throat> definitely. And it's funny, I was just talking to one of my board members on the way here this morning about this. And we're talking about putting together uh, some kind of legislative advocacy group or actually hiring someone to come in and work with legislators and figure out how we can really resolve this poll issue. Um, should we, you know, have some kind of poll access fee payment? What would it look like? So I really do think that we need to set aside these lawsuits and sit down and say, what can we actually do to move the needle forward for municipalities? Um, I think that one of the things that the state of Connecticut could do is get the Office of Broadband back. Um, they were a tremendous asset to all the towns in terms of providing resources and assets and connections. There are a lot of vendors there's a lot of private partners waiting outside and watching Connecticut right now. They don't want to come in right now, and I wouldn't want them to come in right now. We're not ready, but they're ready. They have the investors. They have the business plans. They can do the design work. They can help communities do a financial stack so they can figure out, you know, where am I going to get this money? Am I going to do bonds? Am I going to do grants? What's it going to be? They can do all of it. So I really do think there are options out there. I think we need to get a person back in that office who can be that point of contact. And then I do think that the state should consider ways to support the municipalities in doing some of this assessment work. And I know I'm talking money, but I think that it would be money well spent if we could have the communities have a really good idea of what it would take to do what they want to do. Jessica Fowler, thanks so much for joining us here on Where We Live. We appreciate your perspective. It won't be the last time we talk about this, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and Jed Presgrove joining us by phone today, staff writer with Government Technology Magazine, who's covered this issue uh, extensively. We're going to link uh, to some of your stories uh, at Where We Live on Twitter. Uh, Jed, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're getting a shift and talk about streaming services. Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus are the latest to debut. Are you watching? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I've got a question for you. How many streaming services do you subscribe to now? And are you willing to pay for more? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There are more choices now than ever before that Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus have begun streaming. And what are they offering to set themselves apart from Netflix, among others? Joining us uh, from a studio at NPR is Eric Deggins, uh, who's the NPR's TV critic. Eric, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit more. Let's start with Disney+. Plus. This was highly anticipated, went live last week. What's been the response? The response has been phenomenal, and uh, it has really gotten the attention of the industry. They they announced um, at the end of their first day that they had 10 million subscribers. And to help uh, put that in perspective, um, earlier this year, CBS All Access, the streaming service that's maintained by CBS, uh, announced that on that service and on Showtime, the app that they have that people who have Showtime can access, uh, together they had 8 million people. So, wow. you know, Disney Plus started with a level of subscribers that's arguably ahead of a company that's been in the game for years. And, uh, you know, some of that was achieved by they they signed up people early at this D23 convention, and they had um, this uh, uh, offer out there where you could sign up early, uh, and and you got a little bit of a discount if you did that. And they even had uh, some deal with Verizon where uh, some uh, Verizon customers would would get the service uh, free for a year, I think. So they had a lot of different ways to kind of funnel people into this service, but still 10 million people. People is really impressive. And they've been pulling their content off of other uh, platforms, especially Marvel movies. But what about original content? Uh, what's drawing people uh, to Disney Plus, Eric? Well, I think what's drawing people to Disney Plus is the great library that they have. Uh, as you mentioned, they have brought together, um, you know, Marvel products, um, Star Wars, Lucasfilm products, Pixar products, National Geographic products. Um, you know, 30 seasons of The Simpsons. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of, of library material that you can access right away. Um, they only have uh, a few original shows, and, and most of them are very niche kind of products. You know, they have a, uh, a show called High School Musical, the musical, the, the movie, I think, or the, or the series. That's what they call it. High School Musical, the musical, the series. And it's basically a scripted uh, show about um, uh, a bunch of high schoolers who decide to put on a production of High School Musical. Musical, the musical, and so, um, so there's, there, you know, that's a very targeted audience, you know. Uh, but, but their their big uh, original project is called The Mandalorian, and it's the first live action scripted show set in the Star Wars universe. It was created by and written by John Favreau, who's the director of Iron Man and Jungle Book and The Lion King. You know, a very well known performer, director, writer, and and so that's gotten the lion's share of attention. But they've also announced plans to have a lot of TV shows set in the Marvel Universe, uh, you know, a show featuring Loki, a show featuring Wanda and the Vision, a show featuring uh, the Winter Soldier and Falcon. Um, you know, there may be uh, other uh, original shows set in the Pixar Universe. They have one called um, Forky Asks a Question um, that, that has already debuted. They have a series starring Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> mm. You know, it's an unscripted series where he goes around and asks questions about things. So, um, so there's a lot of different original material, but I would say it's going to take them a while 
to build that out. And it's and it's really about the, the huge library that they offer people um, that's particularly uh, attractive to kids or parents of kids and um, people who love genre things like superheroes uh, and, and animated. I'm glad that you mentioned The Mandalorian. My eight-year-old son has been dropping hints about uh, this again, uh, this Star Wars uh, uh, web television series uh, set uh, in the Star Wars universe. Uh, I'm I'm getting this description off of Wikipedia because I don't know anything about it, Eric. The series taking place five years (laughs) after the events of Return of the Jedi. He's also a big Marvel fan. But we asked our uh, intern, uh, Kevin Morrison, uh, why he subscribed. And he said, uh, number one, The Mandalorian. But he also said, what I'm noticing from my generation, he's in his 20s. His friends, uh, the big draw for Disney Plus are the Disney Channel shows and movies from the late 90s, the early 2000s, like Lizzie McGuire, Kim Possible, High School Musical. These aren't available anywhere else and thus haven't been in a while. It's a blast of nostalgia. So definitely to what you were saying, Eric. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this streaming future is all about um, catering to uh, uh, consumers who increasingly demand uh, exactly what they want to see, exactly when they want to see it, exactly how they want to see it, exactly where they want to see it. And and this is something that I uh, I talked about uh, years ago in a column. I called it on-demand attitude. And and as um, you know, as as generations progress, um, more and more we get people who expect this. I mean, you know, I'm old enough, and I shouldn't be outing myself here, but <laughs> but I'm old enough uh, to remember when you could not capture something that happened on television on any recording device as an average consumer. You had to see it when it happened, or you had to hope that whatever um, network broadcast it would rerun it at some later date. Um, now we've reached a point where you can call up you know, most episodes of television that you're interested in and, and, and watch them whenever you want on your phone, on your tablet, on your laptop, on your um, uh, home television. And you can even buy episodes of television and own them. And, and, and so um, we're in a very different environment, especially for young people who were raised in this environment. And, and, you know, so they have no patience for any kind of barrier that keeps them from watching the, the shows that they want when they want it. And that's one thing that's fueling this streaming revolution where so many companies that make media are creating their own platforms for it so they can make sure that their fans can get access to the material exactly when they want it, how they want it, where they want it. Uh, it's not a good time for productivity these days, Eric Deggins. But I wanted to, before we run out of time, talk about Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, there's a show that people are talking about called The Morning Show. What's that about? Yeah, so this is their, this is Apple TV Plus's uh, highest profile show. It stars Jennifer Aniston as sort of um, a Katie Couric style anchor who was co-host of a morning show. Her co-anchor uh, gets fired because of sexual harassment and assault allegations, sort of like Matt Lauer. And uh, um, she decides to have Reese Witherspoon, this up-and-coming brash, truth-telling, um, you know, reporter, uh, join her on the show as as her co-anchor. And so as the show plays out, I've seen all of the episodes, but Apple rolled out three um, on November 1st when they debuted the service, and then they've been rolling out an episode every week. So they're not to the end of the uh, first, seri- se- first um, season run yet. Uh, but as the show plays out, you get this examination 
of, you know, um, Me Too questions. You know, when something like this is happening in an office, Mm -hmm. how is it enabled? Um, When people assume that a relationship is consensual between someone who is at the top of an organization and someone who's at the bottom, how consensual is it really? And how much can you blame other people at the top of the food chain who just kind of turn a blind eye because they admire the person who is doing this thing or because they're friends with the person or because they, they imagine something is happening that is much less nefarious. And all these questions that you might want to ask uh, Katie Couric or Matt Lauer, if you actually uh, could strap them to a lie detector, <laughs> uh, well, this gets dramatized. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's a huge uh, show. You know, rumors are that they uh, are spending $100 million for two seasons of this show. So it looks really nice. There's lots of stars in it. Mindy, Mindy Kaling and, and uh, Martin Short make cameos. Uh, um, it, it's getting mixed reviews mm-hmm. uh, because they're, it, is, it has had trouble articulating the story, but it is their highest profile show so far, original show. So, Eric, we have less than two minutes, but I wanted to ask you, you know, what advice do you have for our listeners on how to navigate all of these choices without uh, paying too much? Right. Well, the first thing I I tell people to do is uh, accept that there is a lot of choice out there and that you have to have a strategy. We've just gotten so used to a situation where you just buy a cable subscription or you you know, throw up an antenna, and that's your TV. Well, now you have a lot of choice, so you have to make choices. Secondly, uh, do a TV diary in the way some people do uh, a food diary right before they start to uh, start a diet. You know, keep track of what you actually watch. Don't imagine what you watch during a day, but actually keep track of it for a week. And then you can have a sense of what services do you need uh, to spend money on. And I think you might find that you will spend less money if you're very smart about which streaming services you get. And you know, if you cut the cord and and stop paying uh, for cable, which forces you to pay for all these channels you don't watch. Well, we appreciate having you back on the show. Eric Deggins, again, TV critic for NPR. We're going to actually tweet out, uh, you did a great life kit for NPR on how to juggle all these streaming services. We appreciate your time. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. A special thanks to Lydia Brown and Kyone Wolf. Learn more about the show. Just download our show on your favorite podcast app. As always, thanks for listening.